you can see the NHS as an, as, a, as an economic model, as a utility. And if you do, it's possible to hit your targets and miss the point. You know, it's possible to operate a health system which is highly effective, but actually does very little to reverse the inverse care law. You know, and you still hit your targets. Hi, my name's Dr. Rachel Steen, and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Hello and welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. Ooh, I'm thrilled and honoured to be able to sit down to chat to Lord Victor Adebowale today. Um, Victor works in a number of roles but is principally Chief Executive of Turning Point, a health and social care social enterprise providing services for people with complex needs, including drug and alcohol users, those with mental health problems and learning disabilities. As a foundation of all of this, I know Victor has a strong drive and desire to reduce health inequalities, and this is one key mission for him and I suppose a vision for Turning Point. In 2001, Victor was awarded a CBE for his services to homeless young people and the unemployed, and working on the New Deal, which was New Labour's programme for reducing unemployment back in the early noughties. Hi Victor, welcome to the episode. Hi, Hi. you can call me Victor by the way. Thank you. Unless you're trying to sell me something. (laughs) Thank you, Victor. So, Victor, welcome to the episode. It's really, really, really nice to be able to have you here to talk to us. When when I say in the introduction that your turning point has a vision to reduce health inequalities, would you say that was correct? No, I would say that is correct. We, we, um, I suppose our mission would be to reverse the inverse care law, Mm -hmm. because everything we do across learning disabilities, mental health, substance misuse, all points in between the public health work we do, it's with people and in places that are at the sharp end of the inverse care law, which the you know the, the Tudor heart, you know, those people in need of health and social care the most tend to get it the least. Um, it's at that end of things, and um, you can't do what we do and not have that at your mission because what would be the point? <laughs> it seems to me to be an obvious. I mean, it's my personal mission. It's why I um, have done what I've done in various guises, but it's also turning points as well that mm. our our um, my colleagues and, and our clients actually, you know, we take it seriously. It yeah. is what we do. Mm. Yeah, and have you? Do you feel like you've got your colleagues and clients on board with that? I hope so. Mm. I think we are. Um, uh, I, I'd like to think we're a successful organisation. What I do know about successful organisations is that there's an alignment between you know vision, mission, values, strategy, and operations, and. Uh, I was just talking to our managing director about this. I think we do. We are there is an alignment between what I feel, think, and value, and what is thought and felt and valued at the front line. Not because, not just because I say so, 
but because there is a um, an alignment of values, you know, we mm-hmm. we do believe in the same things. I think here. Mm. Yeah, and how do you how do you get your your staff on board with that? How do you go about creating um, a vision that everyone? I ask good questions. <laughs> yeah, I ask good questions, and it's not so much my. I have vision for the kind of organisation that I want to be. Um, uh, that I want to be involved with and I've shared that vision but you can't I don't think you can force vision on people <laughs> you have to invite people in <laughs> so I've spent 20 odd years inviting people in they choose whether they want to come in or not but if they come in I know that they that they they want to be aligned they want to work they want to turn that vision into something and I mean the thing about visions is that they are not um, achievable <laughs> not not in you know they are about something beyond the day-to-day or about the big thing about changing the world yeah and it's interesting you say that they're not achievable not not in a not in a I mean in my lifetime you know I've seen at least three recessions I've seen homelessness get better and I've seen it get worse I've seen poverty get better and I've seen it get worse I've seen leadership i've seen god knows how many configurations of the nhs all of which were heralded by the achievement of a vision um i'm old enough now to realize that actually um uh, visions are always just out of reach um because if uh, in order that you keep reaching <laughs> you keep you know yeah. the, the perfection or getting to the ideal um, place it, it's not a place it's it's a journey mm. it's not about getting there it's about the journey to get there that's that's how you that's what vision's about it's the journey and it's important to have that though even well, even I don't know I'm a terrible I'm a terribly story somebody's listening to this will tell me what's true but you know it is true without vision people die you know vision's important having yeah. a vision yeah it's why we have the NHS yeah yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a great vision to have. I think. Um, I think it's a great vision. Um, I know you say that it's your your vision as well as Turning Point. Can you tell us a little bit about Turning Point mm. and what? Well, it's our vision. You know, it's it's now our vision, and I have an amazing team here. And everybody says that, but it is true. I mean, I have the best team ever. They are they are amazing people. They're smart, um, funny, um, and Everybody at Turning Point's got a slightly worried look. That's how you know they work here. You know, they've always got this slightly worried look. I love it. They're all really sweet with slightly worried looks on their faces. Um, Why do you think that is? Because, actually, <laughs> we are responsible for the better lives of 100,000 people. And uh, they, they, we all feel privileged. And I think we would all say that, this, I think, to that people who have serious challenges uh, come to us you know, and they 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 share their lives with us and their hopes and their dreams and their and we um, help them see the possibilities of being different uh, of a different life or living this life better. Um, and we think that's a privilege um, because to share that level of intimacy with another human being is a privilege. So yeah. Um, we so that's hence the slightly worried look <laughs> even when we're laughing because it is a privilege you know it's something that we take very seriously um but yeah it's a complex organization i mean we employ near as damn it four thousand people uh, we operate in 300 locations 
um, as I say, we provide a whole range of interventions, um, including primary care interventions, specialist primary care services. We employ doctors, nurses, um, psychiatrists, consultant psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, specialist drug workers. You know, we we have we we have you know fifty seven varieties. So that breeds its own complexity in terms of culture and um, alignment. Uh, so yeah, it is complicated, and uh, it's further complicated by the context in which we operate, which is often stressed. The public health funds, NHS, um, local government, um, and the regulatory framework which we operate in, which is equally complicated. I mean, we were regulated by you know CQC the the HCA, the Homes and Communities Agency, um, the various um, requirements of local government all over the country, um, you know, as well as the usual standard, you know, charity commission, companies house, even though we're a social enterprise. Um, and then there's the the question of actually running a business because we don't fundraise, we 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 win contracts. So this is a business, uh, and it's a business with a, with a wafer thin margin. Um, uh, looking after the lives of people, so yeah, to keep ourselves in the top uh, percentage of CQC operating health and care organisations is no mean feat, um, as is maintaining a viable organisation financially in this day and age. So, you know, it's my team are superb; they are mm-hmm. the best of the best. Oh, well, that's great to hear. Yeah, I um, think so. And they've been here a long time. A lot of them have been here a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, Victor, I've heard you talk about, uh, with Turning Point, one of its real benefits mm. is that sort of one-stop shop approach where, mm. and I know you've talked about this a fair bit, about the idea of reducing negative value yeah, transfer. Yeah, negative value transfer, yeah. Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's probably, yeah... Um, one of the things that I've observed, we've observed, is that poor people um, often have the most complex challenges. In fact, it was put to me by the chief executive Barkin and Dagenham when he pointed out to me that the active life expectancy of a woman in Barkin and Dagenham, which is London, one of the poorer London boroughs, is 55. I think in Richmond it's in the 70s, which you know. Right? Yeah, so so that, young, that, that young woman, you know, 55, is not old in my book. Um, will be starting to lose her faculties at the age of 55 and she'll probably um, have more than one challenge which will mean that she'll almost certainly end up you know maybe backwards and forwards to A&E bit of primary care bit of this bit of that and for her it will mean several different places she will have to go to get several different interventions Um, and and she'll be signposted here and signposted there and the point is that each shift costs that woman time and probably money, but it certainly costs the NHS and social care system both. And it's a design question. You know, we we don't design services such that that woman gets positive value transfer, i.e. she goes to as few places as possible to get as much as is necessary. And to me, it falls into the um, category... Um, I mean, in a nutshell, there's only three challenges facing the NHS. There's only three. Equity, access and technology, in that order. And uh, negative 
and positive value transfer fall into falls into the access bit because you design services that reduce negative value transfer, then they're also accessible. Mm. So, for Turning Point, um, what we try and do is design services that are positive value yeah, for our how clients. Do you, how do you do that? Well, we listen to the client. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not always possible because we're a commission service. So, um, for our substance misuse services, for instance, you know, commission will go out to provide X service for X people, and we'll put in a bid, but we'll des- we'll put in a bid, which will be an honest assessment of what's needed. Um, but I'll give you an example of what we've done, of what Turning Point did. We were pro- probably the first organisation. And this sounds bizarre now, but we were. We developed the first integrated substance misuse service back in the day, in the early 2000s. Because before then, you had drug services and alcohol services, and never twin shall meet. And the problem with that was that um, if you had both, and many people do, you, you would, yeah? And there was this notion amongst substance misusers that if you were an alcoholic, you couldn't possibly go to a drug service because you're not a drug addict. And if you were a drug addict, you wouldn't go to an alcohol services because they're all a bit soft. <laughs> hardcore, you know, they're not hardcore. Mm-hmm. And, and the commissioners felt that was the case as well. And there was this battle between alcohol and drugs. Um, and we designed, at great risk to us actually, services that were integrated. Uh, because from the point of view of a client, going to base made no sense. Makes no sense. So what we did is design services from the client from a client's point of view that got over some of the barriers around you know perceptions of alcohol and drugs and um, and I think the first place we did it was Wakefield I think the second was it was either Somerset or Wiltshire I think it was Somerset mm. um, that and it took great. off that sounds great and that fits in very nicely with what's happening at the moment with integrated care systems mm. and sort of really trying to build relationships mm. within systems mm. and how does I'm interested how how do you as turning point build relationships within systems because you mentioned earlier a little bit about competition mm. and that obviously has mm. a bit of an, eff- well, an effect on yeah. other services you're yeah. competing with other services yeah. in the local area yeah and again we don't always do it but we we um, the fact of the matter is where you've got limited resources um, competition can waste them so we try and collaborate as far as we can I mean I set up an organisation called Collaborate for this reason. Um, we think that we should be collaborating with local service uh, users, uh, clients, um, the NHS, uh, public health, and we do, and we do in places like uh, Leicestershire, uh, where we provide the crisis mental health, the substance misuse um, community in prison. We 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 are the glue. We we hold um, the system together on behalf of clients. It's not easy. But fundamentally, it's about building relationships with people as opposed to uh, shouting objectives. Relationships trump objectives every time. So we're, we're relationship builders. Uh, we, we build relationships in the interests of the, of the client um, with other organisations. Um, and we try and put the condition of the client on the table and challenge people to either lead, follow or get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds easy, but it's not. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It sounds, yeah. it sounds hard. Yeah, yeah. And I can imagine that's particularly challenging in sort of really struggling work. communities. When, when does it not work? Um, well, 
it doesn't always work because the conditions for collaboration just aren't there, you know, um, because we, we don't own the means of production and our sphere of influence is limited. So if we if you've got particularly, um, if you've got internecine warfare between health and um, local government, if you've got poor commissioning, if you've got just um, uh, poor understanding of the needs of the clients, then it, it, it can be challenging to make it work. Um, uh, but uh, the conditions for it working are often an understanding, you know, an understanding, and um, where commissioners understand that their job isn't to protect their budgets, as important as that may be, is to provide services for people, um, and those services, the cl- the clients, the public don't care. What they just want services that are meaningful, human, and have outcomes. You know, they want positive value transfer, and where it works, people work on their relationships with that. With that, as the primary end. You know, the end focus, as opposed to um, uh, protecting their patch at the, at the at the expense of everyone else. Yeah, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Relationships mm. is the glue there, isn't mm. it? Um, and some of the sort of hot topics at the moment is kind of thinking about place. Based well, sort of we, yeah, well, as chair of Collaborate, I chaired a piece of work uh, sponsored by a new local government network on the whole notion of place and health and social care. It was called Get Well Soon, and it influenced the NHS England's um, plan. Um, well, for the for several years, indeed, it's still influencing it. Um, and basically, the notion of place isn't new. I'm always struck by how we invent these new things. It's it's really about how you understand um, the population in which you how do you how do you understand them? How do you engage with them? How do you build services that are relevant to their needs as opposed to the services need? It's not difficult. It's the whole notion of population health. Um, the concept isn't difficult, at least to my mind. The application of it is 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 rather more challenging, partly because you know, you get things like health and social care, local government and, and, and health speak different languages. So you need translators, you know, you literally need people who can translate, mean, you know. Um, you need meet the means by which you can understand the, need, the needs of an individual. So you need commissioning to be about understanding the needs of an individual and or their community, such that you can um, build the platform for procurement, not the other way around, um, and contracting, and that's a different. You need you need commissioning to be defined in that way. I.e., commissioning is the means by which you need understand the needs of an individual and/or a community, such that you can build a platform for procurement and/or contracting. Um, you need um, health and social care. You know, the new population health systems to start with an understanding of population need, which is agreed by all the participants. Because unless you can do that, then you, you're, not all, you're not all orientated around the same problem, which means you won't trust each other. So in order to build trust, you have to be orientated around the same problem. And you can't set um, system-wide object, objectives together unless you've built trust. Mm. It just it won't work, and and if you haven't built trust and you haven't got objectives, then you can't allocate resource, and if you can't allocate resource, people will spend what they've got on their objectives. You know, so it, there's a there's a a process of of building 
um, population health teams, I guess. I guess it's based on um, uh, work, the work done by uh, Drexler and Sibbert in the 70s. Oh, now you built on what happens in dysfunctional teams, oddly enough. Mm. Um, so it is possible. Um, sometimes it happens by accident. You know, good relationships are built over years, um, and individuals, you know, have a high degree of trust because they've worked together over a long period, etc., etc. But I also believe it can be designed in. It's not an accident. It's it's a product of good leadership. Um, it can be designed in. Um, so. I guess I'm in favour of population health. That's where the NHS started. Mm. Um, but it requires a particular... It requires leadership beyond boundaries. Mm. It requires system leadership. Um, and mm. that's... That's to be encouraged. Mm. And, and by it, system leadership, you mean... Um, so leadership where you're um, bringing together lots of different systems. Yeah, you have to yeah. see the system rather than just your own organisation um, and your own team, you have to be capable of intellectually crossing boundaries but also emotionally crossing boundaries. Mm. I find it quite interesting yeah. that in um, in lots of different systems we all just speak a completely different language mm. and I found it quite, I've, I've been in a few meetings with you um, over the last few months and I think you've got a very special talent Ooh. of being able to um, ask questions and you said this earlier you said Ooh. that you've been able to you, you're good at asking the right question um, and I found that quite interesting that you you ask questions to clarify things mm. a lot which mm. I think is in no way a criticism yeah. it's actually a compliment in the sense that and there's a few times that I feel like I'm everyone, not that bright everyone in the room, in the room may think <laughs> actually what's what's being said here yeah. and there's, I feel like within different systems there's a lot of jargon there's a yeah, lot there of is. conversations that people don't actually know what people no. mean no. um and so I've noticed you doing it. Do you think that's one of the solutions, really, to work out exactly what people mean? When no, I'm, I'm a great or? one for asking questions. Mm. I think that the one, the most powerful and most interventions in leaders that leaders can make in any system is to is to work out what the right question is, mm. and ask it, and, um, and sometimes keep asking it. Um, uh, I am very sceptical. I don't speak fluent NHS, and I know very few people that do. And the ones that do speak fluent NHS are cut off from most human beings. Now, I'm not saying that learning fluent NHS isn't necessary, you know, but I think it can be a barrier to making change. And I think that there are a lot of assumptions about what people do and don't understand. I also know that if I ask a question, I'm almost certainly doing it on behalf of at least two other people in the room. And I'm a great believer in the process matching the intention because I think there's a lot of process out there that is not linked to any intention at all it's just process right and people get used to doing it um, I'm a great believer in, in 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 everybody really understanding what the intention is like why are we doing this <laughs> why are we doing this and mm -hmm. does the process that we've put in place will it lead to this to the outcome that is defined by the intention mm. and, and the if it doesn't that we were talking about at the beginning ties into yeah, it, that yeah, well, doesn't it yeah yeah and if it yeah. doesn't then why why are we doing it what's the process for right mm. and often i've found particularly in health and social care even if the processes continue they're done out of tradition or an artifact to appease anxiety rather than 
connect to any intention at all. You know? mm. Mm. So that's why I asked the question. Yeah, so with that, the question, I'm really stupid. I'm not <laughs> having meetings with, with. I don't quite believe that. <laughs> no, no. Do you ever worry that you're banging a drum, a health inequality drum, and you get people are just going to no. turn off and stop listening? Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't worry about it because what else am I going to do? I mean, the fact of the matter is, what else are we going to do? You know, um, I've yet to meet somebody with a credible argument for not doing anything about this. The NHS was started by people who were poorer and less qualified than anyone you're, you've ever met. You know, anybody you've ever met are likely to meet. And it's probably the most powerful social intervention in the history of this country, right? Now, for 70 years, well, certainly for 60 years, the life chances, active and actual, of the working classes increased every year until about 10 years ago when they started to level off. And in some places it's declining, even though the population's health, life expectancy is going up. Now the problem with that is, as we've referred to, is that it's very expensive, but it also, it's kind of immoral. A system designed by poor people to improve the lives of poor people that just happen to improve the lives of the middle classes on the way should never become one where the middle classes lives are improved but the poor are going in the opposite direction it's both expensive and immoral so what else are, what else are you going to do what else are you going to talk about if you're involved in health and social care what else what else are you what else are you saying why are you why are you there i mean there's nothing I'm, you know if you want to become a doctor to the rich and famous that doesn't make you a bad person but if you're going to work in the nhs what else are you going to talk about yeah, I completely agree. Where did this all come from, Victor? So hearing you talk, I don't imagine this desire to tackle health inequalities arrived when you became Chief Executive at Turning Point. Oh, God, no. Where did it come from Logic. Career? Logic analysis, the yeah. requirement of any <laughs> sensible human being to have an impact in a, in a system. I mean, my background's in housing, so mm. um, it's the same thing, really. Inverse care law applies there as well. Um, so my experiences of life have led me to believe that um, in most public services the inverse care law applies it shouldn't it's an inefficient use of limited resource mm. and we should be reversing it mm. and my, whatever job I've done it's been the logical conclusion mm. um, uh, maybe I should have gone into banking and I would I would have made a, I would have made a lot more money. <laughs> so there's, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people who don't don't have this as their their goal. And, yeah, they don't have to. They're still and, nice people. But if you're then working with them within the system and trying mm. to align your vision, mm. how, how do you go about that? If you've got well, people who don't quite feel like sometimes, that? I mean, you can see the NHS as an as, a, as an economic model, as a utility, and if you do, it's possible to hit your targets and miss the point. You know, it's possible to operate a health system which is highly effective but actually does very little to reverse the inverse care law you know, and you still hit your targets and you know, I've spoken to um, economists in the health service who would argue that inequality will be resolved by you know, uh, the tide that lifts every boat right? When I point out to them that some of the boats are actually full of lead, and that's not going to work, you, know, you have to do, give some people a, a, the equity question as opposed to the equality question. Yeah. Um, they're, they're quite dismissive, and, and that 
it's frustrating because they're wasting money, mm. but they're hitting their targets. So it's difficult. Although, although I know that in cancer, for instance, we might be hitting the targets, but you're still more likely to have your cancer diagnosed in A and E if you're one of them. So I think there is an approach to health which is useful for its purpose, but useless for the for the for the intention of the NHS, in my view. You know, mm. if the NHS was started by economists, I don't think we would have got very far. Not that I'm getting against economists; mm. some of my best friends and all. But there's a view, there's a way of looking at the NHS, which which in my view drives out that measure as a um, an accountability issue. You know, my view is that the NHS or its, its leadership should be held accountable fundamentally for their ability to reverse the inverse care law. Mm. And it's interesting you mention accountability, um, mm. Victor, because how how are services being held accountable for this, sort of locally Good and question. nationally? Good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I have the answer, to be honest. I mean, mm. there are measures within the 10-year um, plan which one could argue, um, so, you know, Nikki Canini, who I know very well and have huge respect for, has got um, in the new primary care network contract in amongst the seven things that they are accountable for, there is an inequality measure. Yeah, number now, seven. Yeah. Number seven, exactly. Yeah. So the question then becomes, well, how accountable are they? Um, what priority given is it given? The problem with the challenge, I would say, is that if 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 it's one of seven, the other six will also have a, an, an equality. <laughs> it's you know, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and it, it can be quite um, confusing, but also have the opposite effect. If it's if it's one measure amongst seven, as opposed to the measure, <laughs> yeah then it's possible to kind of, well, we'll do everything else and then we'll do that. Well, everything else affects that, so <laughs> start there. I can't think of a service that a primary care network is going to provide that isn't impacted by the by the inverse care law, mm-hmm. so I don't understand why it's not just the measure. <laughs> everything you do should be in the service of reversing the inverse care law. Because if you do that, the middle classes benefit as much as everyone else. Yeah. Um, so it is, you know, and then there's the question of, all right, let me let me state that um, now I'm not criticising Nikki in any way. I'm sure there are forces that she has to attend to, but it seems to me that then the question becomes, well, how seriously? What happens if you don't? What happens if you don't? If it's number seven, and it becomes number twenty-seven in terms of priorities or attention or whatever design, what happens? You know who I, I I don't know. You know, um, and the same could be said for uh, integrated care systems, STPs, the panoply of the um, of uh, abbreviations that that make up a population health system. I don't know how you hold them to account. Mm, it's really hard, singularly it? for that. Um, but what I do know in the NHS is that what gets measured gets managed. It's a very quant-driven system and some people say that's brilliant and um, I'm not sure convinced myself but uh, unless it is measured it won't it, the attention will not be paid to it it's mm-hmm. just simple as that mm-hmm. and talking about measurements what what do you think about measurements based on the well-being of users so you're obviously you're seeing patients yeah, um, yeah. in your services which are 
with multiple patients with multiple complex yeah. needs. Yeah. Those are loads of different problems. Yeah. Could you can you say that a service is doing well based on the well-being of the user? Well, it depends what you mean. Uh, we do use um, all sorts of measures. I think it's really important that you take into account the experience. You know, I I note that in several areas of um, health and social care, you know, the experiences of BME groups, for instance, and the outcomes for those groups are markedly markedly poor, poorer. And you tell me. I mean, you're you're a damn sight more qualified than I am to say this, but I think the experience of a patient in any health system has an impact on their um, recovery or outcome. You know, I think you know if you're a cruel doctor that's really <laughs> effective. I think you'd be a better doctor if you were understanding and took into account the patient's views of what's important to them. Um, you know, uh, there's a story of a woman who had a, a knee problem and she went to see a doctor and a doctor booked her into a specialist and she went to see the specialist and the specialist said to her, well, I'm going to operate with on you at this moment in time um, and then told her that the operation will be probably 90% unsuccessful, but you know, so she won't be able to bend her knee, but it'll be less painful, or it might be slightly less painful. Um, and there's a risk, like all operations, because she was quite old, that she might not come out of it. And she asked him one question. She said, um, will I be able to garden? Will I be able to bend down and get close to the flowers? And he went, no, it's never going to happen. And she said, well, I'd rather not have the operation then, because the only reason I'm doing it is so I can bend down and get close to flowers. And I'd rather not put myself through that because what's important for me is being able to bend down and get the flowers. So, if, thank you very much. Yeah, completely. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and unless that conversation is is real, yeah, I think you yeah, can yeah. do a lot of harm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's listening and asking the right questions. It's asking well, the right yeah. questions, not just um, of patients individually, but whole communities. Yeah. So I'm I'm uh, I'm in favour of of um, community engagement and individual engagement. Mm, mm, mm. Really interesting. Can I ask you just two more questions, Victor? Okay. Um, <laughs> this podcast is for professionals yeah. wanting to learn more about health inequalities. Right. What? What would you? Is there one book you might recommend? Oh crikey! Um, anything by Michael Marmot? Um, yeah. I Invisible Cities by Tal Calvino. Just read. Mm. Read, read, read books about things that aren't about you or what you know. Um, read book, read a book, read a book that allow, gives your mind the space to be something other than um, cynical, if that's what you are. <laughs> and if you're not, not yet. And if you're not, read, read a book that takes you out of your own life and into someone else's. Mm, mm. Oh, I really like that. And and um, if you could change one thing. Um, or do one thing to reduce health inequalities, what would that one thing be? I would have a universal cross-NHS social care accountability and measure Mm -hmm. so that it was the one thing that the whole system was held accountable for so that leaders everywhere and those who hold the means of production could not spend or consider spending without considering its impact on the inverse care law. Mm -hmm. And do you know what that is? No. no, but you know we've got some measures, haven't we? Life quality mm. um, uh, and active life expectancy, and like you know we've got the measures. It's about making them. It's about making them visible. It's about it's about holding people 
accountable for commissioning and service design implementation in those terms. So if you spend my taxpayer, my tax dollar in a community and, and it's not improving the lives of the poorest, I'm holding you accountable for that. Mm. Mm. That, that would sharpen people's minds. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. Well, Victor, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Um, I've luck. really enjoyed chatting to you. Um, take care and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, thank take you care. very Bye. much. Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteen. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.